Brothers and sisters, this morning as we come to the Word of God, uh, the message title is The Triumph of God at Mount Carmel and the Defeat of Baal. And the text is 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 19 through 40. Before I read that, I'd like to actually um, draw your attention to the five component parts of this passage, along with five significant questions. Now, this passage, first and foremost, begins to deal with the issue of the challenge, which is, who is truly God? Secondly, the decision of the challenge, who will have your allegiance? Then thirdly, uh, the terms of the challenge, who will answer with fire? And then fourth, the answer of the challenge, who has shown himself to be God? And then Fifthly, the consequences of the challenge, who are the ones that die? Because this is a life and death issue. So now I want to begin reading at verse 19. And these are Elijah's words to King Ahab. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, And I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it. And called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. And there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, Come near to me. 
And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel should be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, as great as it would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said a third time, and they did it a third time. And the waters ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now notice again the five components and the corresponding questions. The issue of the challenge. Who is truly God? The decision of the challenge. Who will have your allegiance? The terms of the challenge. Who will answer with fire? The answer of the challenge who has shown himself to be God, and the consequences of the challenge. Who are the ones that die? Let's pray. Father, as we consider this passage of your word today, help us to understand the pivotal significance of this time in Israel and this pivotal significance of this showdown on Mount Carmel. Help us then also, Father, to translate your truth here to our time, to our day, and to understand what are the kinds of things that are of great significance for your church today, for your people today, that we might understand that always the consequences with respect to you are consequences that lead to eternity, either everlasting life or everlasting death. So give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, and lives that are willing again and again to confess the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. As we come to the showdown on Mount Carmel, we need to recall the introductory preface that is given to us in Scripture to the reign of King Ahab. So that takes us back to 1 Kings chapter 16 
29 to 33. So let me read these words, which we read several months ago. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than to all of the kings of Israel who were before him. Now this, we note that in the year 874 B.C., King Ahab began to reign, to reign over Israel, to reign over the northern kingdom, and he reigned for 22 years. And when Ahab dies, the northern kingdom will last for another 130 years, and then that kingdom will be no more. Because God will summon the Assyrian nation, the Assyrian empire, to come and to conquer the northern kingdom, and then to deport the ten northern tribes as his judgment for Israel's paganism, for their constant worshiping of Baal and Asherah and other idols and gods. Now that context helps us to understand the significance of this great showdown on Mount Carmel. For three years, there has been a total drought. Now we have the events on Mount Carmel, and afterwards, there's going to be a great rain to end the drought. But this great display of God's power and presence against the pagan gods and the worship of idols is something that God does now, but he will not duplicate. He will not repeat. This is the pivotal moment in this nation's history. Now, such pivotal moments come many times in human history to nations, to movements, to the church. But today we don't have God's divine word giving us notice that such and such is a pivotal moment. Yet it isn't wrong to seek to discern such moments in what is happening around us with respect to American culture. We can certainly argue the case that the 1973 Roe v. Wade pro-abortion Supreme Court decision was a pivotal moment in American history. It's certainly the case that the 2015 Obergefell v. Hodges pro-homosexual marriage decision by the Supreme Court is likewise pivotal. But both of these pivotal moments were the outcomes of earlier pivots when did our culture begin to think that pregnancy was a burden rather than a blessing? And when did our culture begin to see the burden of homosexuality as actually a blessing? Both of these pivots, as I have maintained in the series on Elijah, are connected so deeply to the rise and dominance of paganism that worship and theology that replaces the true knowledge of the true God, the worship of the true and living God, as the Apostle Paul lays out in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. 
Now, this application of the idea of paganism to our culture is hardly new. As we have noted before, at the turn of the 20th century, the great Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, uh, lecturing at the then Great Princeton Seminary on the great principles of Calvinism, saw this. He described the spiritual struggles between biblical Christianity and the world. He described the struggles, and he framed it this way. Do I know of another solution of this fundamental world problem, enabling me better to defend my Christian faith in this hour of sharpest conflict against renewed paganism, collecting its forces and gaining day by day? Do not forget that the fundamental contrast has always been, is still, and will be until the end, Christianity and paganism the idols, or the living God. So to find some exact moment when Western civilization pivoted away from its Judeo-Christian foundations to sink back into its pre-Christian paganism, it's impossible to say. Of greater importance is to recognize that has happened and it is here and to understand what we as believers are supposed to do. This is why throughout this series theme, we have stated the overarching theme in this way. Even if paganism has eclipsed the influence of biblical truth in this age and culture, the call to all believers is to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. And as we have focused upon this time of Ahab and Elijah, which is a pivotal period in the history of the northern kingdom we have come to the biblical text again and again with this thematic point of view that god does what he does with us for us and to us in order to require of our faith that we believe and trust that god is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves now the way that first kings 18 19 through 40 presents the five component parts to this showdown on Mount Carmel, this challenge, indicates that there is so much to consider in terms of these corresponding five questions. Between today and Palm Sunday, I hope to consider all of them, but for today, just the first. The issue of the challenge, who is truly God? And that means that we're only going to be looking at verses 19 through 21, which let me read again. Now, therefore, Elijah says to Ahab, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount, at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asher who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So, Elijah's challenge to the people of Israel is essentially asking this question. Who is truly God? Now, to begin with, that question is the biggest of all questions. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, 
You might be familiar with the name Mortimer Adler. In the 20th century, he was well known as an educator and philosopher. Right at 70 years ago, in conjunction with the University of Chicago and the Encyclopedia Britannica, Mortimer Adler and his editorial board launched the great books. Originally, 54 volumes in the first edition. And by 1990, they, they had, they'd had significant updating and revisions to produce the current 60-volume set. But this omnibus of books contains the greatest writings of Western civilization, those which speak about, discuss the greatest questions, the greatest ideas of the Western intellectual tradition. And Adler points out that this question of God is the ultimate and most significant of all questions, of all the ideas discussed in the great books for this reason. So many other significant ideas hinge on this issue. So many other ideas and values are directly affected by how we answer and act on this question. In fact, he says no other question generates as many concerns or ideas as this question, this issue, the question of God. And so his point is, this is always the first and foremost question about life in some shape or other. And, and how we answer it as the biggest of all questions will directly impact, directly affect all of us because it has the most significant consequences about life. Now, this is very true today. It was very true back in Elijah's time as well. So what I want to do is actually look at the picture of how this works out in today's American culture before we look at Elijah and how this was working in and out in the culture of that day. Specifically, I want us to look at the religious part of our American culture that calls itself Christian. Now, I state it that way with some care. The religious part of our culture that calls itself, that identifies itself as Christian. So the Christian subset of the American culture. And that Christian subset of the American culture is deeply and sharply divided over two very different views about God and two very different views about life and the most important moral concerns. Now, the first position uh, to, to identify this with respect to church history is what we might call the traditional position. And it's specifically identifiable in this way. It holds to the Bible's view of God, and it holds that the Bible is truly God's word. All of it is God's word. All of it is infallible and inerrant. And most significantly, it has the ultimate and highest authority that governs all of our beliefs about God, all of our beliefs about human life, and all of our beliefs about what kind of moral life that God requires. Now, here are a few significant claims and positions that this view of God and of the Bible teach, which the Christian church has faithfully proclaimed since New Testament times. First, human beings are designed by God to have two genders, male and female. 
Secondly, male and female are designed by God to procreate within the covenant that God has established as marriage. Thirdly, the only kind of marriage that God sanctions is male-female. Fourthly, the only place of godly and moral sexuality is when the covenant of marriage. And then fifthly, human life and human personhood begin at conception. Now, on this last point, let me just say something concerning why that is the case. Why, for the past 2,000 years, this has been the church's solid position, grounded in the Bible's clear teaching. For instance, you could go to Psalm 139. You could look at verses 13 through 16. You could see David's own testimony about his own prenatal life, that God was the one who was knitting him together intricately from conception on. Further, the Bible teaches that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, became incarnate at conception. That's on the basis of what the angel Gabriel told to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 31. The Holy Spirit would cause this conception, and that conception would be the beginning of the human existence of Jesus. We also note later in Luke chapter 1, verses 43 to 44, about Elizabeth, uh, Mary's relative. When Mary comes to visit her, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she declares that her own unborn son, later to be called John, later to be known as John the Baptist, her own unborn son inside her womb has leaped for joy at hearing the voice of Mary, the mother of the yet unborn Jesus. So the Christian church holding to the Bible for the last 2,000 years has firmly upheld the sanctity of human life within the womb. From conception on, we are image bearers fully human persons made in God's image. That is why for these 2,000 years of church history, the church has condemned abortion as an act that violates the sixth commandment because it is the unjust taking of a human life. Now, I could go on and I could walk us through all of the biblical basis and teachings about marriage and human sexuality and even more about the beginning and sacredness of human life. But I pause here because the question is, who is God? And if you believe that the Bible is God's holy word, if you believe in the God of the Bible, you're compelled to believe these things that the church has always confessed. Whenever the Bible has had its proper place as fully the word of God. But we have a second position within our culture that also claims the identifier as Christian. But here we have a different view of God and a different view of what God requires of people morally. It is different according to this position, that the Bible is not the word of God, it's not infallible, it's not inerrant, but rather it is something of a great witness to God and to Jesus. It is a source of teaching but not the only or at all times ultimate source of teaching. Rather today, we have contemporary science, contemporary psychology, 
contemporary sociology, contemporary economics, contemporary ethics, including contemporary social justice theory, contemporary critical theory, and its controversial child critical race theory. These also are vital sources of teaching and authority for the contemporary Christian. This is because when this point of view gives the Bible a very sympathetic reading, when it attempts to be faithful to take into account the Bible's place in time and history, nevertheless, the Bible is always subject to scholarly and scientific scrutiny because the Bible remains mistaken in so many critical places. Let's note some of the issues. Let's begin with human life in the womb. According to this understanding, even the best reading of the Bible says that the Bible doesn't really treat life and the womb as fully human and sacred. Uh, the Bible doesn't really give to human fetuses actual personhood. So consequently, the best Christian spec perspective is that abortion and reproductive rights should never be violated. Contemporary Christians ought to be very supportive of Roe versus Wade, and they should work with all women and political perspectives that believe women must have full reproductive rights or consider marriage. The Bible's presentation of marriage is terribly ancient, thoroughly patriarchal, and consequently, the traditional view of marriage is abusive to women and needs to be rejected. It makes women subordinate to men. It treats women as inferior. It gives to all men the right to lord it over all women. So according to the Bible, it is right to suppress the abilities and leadership that God has given to all women. And because the Bible gets it so wrong about marriage, it is unethical for a church to teach what the Apostle Paul teaches in Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, that women are to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. You see, churches that do this, they're complicit, even responsible for the domestic violence that this always engenders. And to teach that women can't be elders or women can't be pastors just shows how wrong the New Testament is. If that is the way you read it, everywhere you see the patriarchalism in the Bible, we have what is very dangerous and oppressive to women. But then go on to sexual orientation. The position I'm talking about here is one that claims very strongly that we know today what neither Paul nor the Old Testament ever knew about homosexuality and transgenderism. All those things that we now know from contemporary science and contemporary psychology and contemporary ethics. So these churches upholding this position teach that God is gay and transgender affirming. These orientations are not wicked aberrations of sexual life. Therefore, good Christians will also be gay affirming, such as being supportive of gay marriage. And good Christians will affirm transgender people and support those policies in pediatric medicine, such as gender transitioning, and elementary school curriculum in which trans boys, trans girls are taught that this is a normal thing. In high school and collegiate sports, in the public square, that allow trans men and trans women 
to be who they really know themselves to be. In fact, good Christians will affirm that sexual behavior outside of marriage isn't actually sinful unless the context is in some sense exploitive. So, to not be gay affirming, transgender affirming, is to be homophobic and transphobic. It's so wrong for Christians to reject those whom God has fully accepted. Now, these are the convictions that we find in those denominations that claim to be Christian, but which have demoted the Bible to a religious witness and who have elevated contemporary science and medicine and psychology and sociology and so forth as carrying the most weight in our understanding of who God is and what God wants of human beings. And you might ask, well, who are these churches? Well, I am most up to date on the Presbyterian Church in the USA. These are all Presbyterian Church USA positions. But Wikipedia has a nice long list of churches that also hold to these points of view. You see, this is where our culture is today. With respect to that broad religious perspective that calls itself Christian, we have a great divide. We have two very different views about God, two very different views about God, what God wants of us in terms of a moral understanding of life. So the question, who is the true God? Is he the God who is the divine author of the Bible, the God of the Holy Scripture, the Holy Scripture that is the infallible rule of faith and practice? Or is he the God who often leads his church to oppose the Bible, who is abortion-approving, gay and transgender-affirming, who condemns traditional marriage as described in the Bible and condemns traditional church leadership practices? And just so you know, this comparison and contrast hasn't even begun to demonstrate how very different these two kinds of Christianity happen to be when it comes to heaven and hell and who is and who is not saved. Two different views of God, two very different Gospels. Now, let's go to Elijah's time. The question, who is God, is of greatest significance. That was so true then. Which is why God has commanded this showdown. So let's do a similar kind of comparison with respect to this question. The God that Elijah serves is the God who has given the law through Moses. The whole law has 613 specific commandments, the heart of which is the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is all about not making any idols, graved images, and not bowing down and worshiping them. These two commandments, simply taken by themselves, reject and oppose all Baal worship. But God has a further concern in the law as well, to warn the Israelites that having the wrong God Worshipping the pagan god Baal or other gods will lead inevitably to degrading pagan practices. And with respect to those 
degrading pagan practices, God has spelled them out in Leviticus chapter 18. Now, for here I would uh, recommend actually the 1984 NIV translation. I don't often recommend the, the NIV, but here I would. Because it actually translates a concept that doesn't mean anything to English readers. Uh, the phrase undercoming, under, uncovering the nakedness of, which has reference to sexual relations, doesn't really make things very clear to us. But the way the NIV speaks of it actually does. So let me just give some synopsis here. In verse 3 of Leviticus 18, God says, You must not do what they did in Egypt, and you must not do what they've been doing in the land of Canaan. Then God goes on to list what Baal-worshipping, idol-worshipping paganism permits and what it did not condemn, but what God himself most certainly does condemn. So let me list five things that we find in this passage in a summary form. First, God condemns all forms of incest. He lists over ten different possibilities of incestuous relationships to make it very clear that what pagan religions allow, God forbids. He mentions adultery, which is the main focus of the seventh commandment. God forbids it. Homosexuality. God calls it detestable and abominable, but the pagans allowed it. He mentions bestiality. Again, God condemns, but paganism doesn't. Fifthly, he mentions child sacrifice, not to sacrifice their children to Moloch. Let me illustrate that, open that up a little bit more by going to Psalm 106, 34 to 39. The psalmist tells us a bit more about this fifth point. There the psalmist is describing the disobedience of the people of God when they came into the land of Canaan. He says, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Do not fail to miss the point. Paganism has the lowest view of infants and children. And then this passage concludes Leviticus 18. God reiterates his point of view. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these practices, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean. So that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants but you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. This is God's verdict. Pagan gods lead to pagan practices. Pagan practices which eliminate all moral boundaries when it comes to human sexual behavior. So with respect to the issue of the challenge, who is truly God? Whether we're looking at the ancient world, whether we are looking at our own times, there is no question more vital for life than knowing and following the true God, both then 
And now, God is telling his people that if they surrender and give up their allegiance to the true God, they will surrender all morality with respect to marriage and human sexuality. And they will even come to devalue the most innocent human life among them. Now, there's a second aspect to this challenge on Mount Carmel that's also related to the question of who is God. And this is the matter of putting God to the test. Because of the eternal significance of this question, who is God? God puts his own presence and identity to the test. Now, generally, Scripture forbids this. It even condemns this, this, this very thing. God's people are never to put God to the test. They were told this frequently during the time of Exodus. Exodus 17, 2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Uh, and then Deuteronomy 6, 16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Again and again, the people of God provoked the God, God of Israel by testing him. So why do we now have this test of who is God? Why is this showdown the right thing at this point in history, but not at other times? Well, the answer is simply this. God has commanded this challenge. God has commanded this test. God is setting this up. God wants this showdown with Baal to happen. But, but why? Why did God allow his existence and authority to be put to the test at this point? Well, here's the reason. If Elijah prays for rain and rain happens without this showdown, without defeating Baal, what is the narrative going to be? Ahab and Jezebel, the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah, and all the official news sources, they're all going to give the credit to Baal. This means that the drought would have served no purpose. Baal worship would be carried on full force. Even though it was Elijah, the servant of the true God who prayed, the outcome of that prayer would have been attributed to the favor of Baal. That is why God puts the matter to the test. This is why he set up this showdown. Baal needs to be fully exposed, fully defeated, defeated to give these people no possible excuse. And then my last point. Finally, because of the eternal significance of the question, who was God? There is a need to expose the sin of agnosticism. In verse 21, Elijah says to the people of Israel, How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, what Elijah is challenging is their pragmatic agnosticism. They're limping between two possible answers to the question, who was God? They're acting in this agnostic fashion. Now, agnosticism in its original sense was the point of view that essentially says, I don't know whether God does or doesn't exist. So I can't commit either way. But it also applies to various views about God's existence. So people can say, well, I think there is a God, but I don't know who was the right God. You know, is it the Christian God, the Muslim God, the Hindu God? And I don't think we can really know, so I can't commit. That Religious agnosticism is the kind of agnosticism that Elijah is facing here. It's the agnosticism that decides to sit on the fence, to decide not to decide, a refusal to 
commit. Elijah calls this limping between two different opinions. And he's telling them it is wrong for them to refuse to fully commit. But why is this wrong before God? It's for this reason. Agnosticism is a claim that you can't be certain about God or about who God is. But God says, yes, you can. Jesus faced the same kind of fence sitting during his ministry when there were divided opinions and rumors surrounding his ministry. The big question was, is he really the Messiah? John chapter 7 uh, presents a story about how this was taking place during one of the feasts in Jerusalem. Among the people, there was a lot of quiet rumor muttering surrounding Jesus, his identity. They weren't, the people were not speaking openly because they were afraid of the Jewish leadership, which, which had already taken anti-Jesus point of view. So lots of people were fence sitting. This is the response that Jesus made in John 7, verses 16 and 17. He said to people, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus is saying to those who could not make up their minds, those who were practicing a kind of agnosticism, if you really want to know, you can know. And then Jesus laid out how this is possible. He says, if you're willing to do God's will, which means... If you're willing to have God as your first love above all things, if you're willing to love your neighbor as yourself, if you are truly willing to live for God, to live in obedience to God, to make sacrifices for God, to go where he calls you and to live where he calls you to live, then, says Jesus, you will know who Jesus truly is whether he is the Lord and Savior, the Son of God, sent from heaven, or whether he's simply a man who's speaking on his own. What Jesus is saying is this. There is no godly reason, no good reason, no reason that God will ever honor for fence-sitting. For this agnosticism with respect to Jesus isn't morally honest. If you truly want to do God's will, you will come to know. Yet, here is the problem, the outstanding problem for the Israelites of the northern kingdom and for people today. We find the problem described for us at the end of Romans chapter 1 in verses 28 to 32. After Paul, in this chapter beginning at verse 18, has shown that pagan worship of the creation exchanges the truth of God for a lie. And after he has shown that God has turned pagans over to the base and dishonorable passions, most notably homosexuality, then Paul comes to this set of statements beginning at verse 28. And he says, And since they, meaning the pagans, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, the most significant thing is said last. This is the, the significant conclusion where Paul says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And this is the outstanding problem. This is the root of agnosticism. This is the basis of limping between two opinions about God or about Christ. The fallen and pagan human heart lives against the will of God, knowingly lives against the will of God, and gives approval to all those who likewise knowingly live against the will of God. But God is a God who saves. Jesus has said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then just a bit earlier, verse 37 through 40, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, because God is a God who saves. Now, the issue before God's ancient people remains the issue of today. Even within those who claim, claim the name Christian, the question remains, who is truly God? If you're willing to see our culture and our behavior through the Bible as truly the word of God, if you're truly willing to do God's will as the Bible so clearly teaches it, teaches it, then you can truly know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can know eternal life in knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And you can know that by God's call of mercy, and by his grace divine, that you are on the Lord's side, and you can confess to Jesus, Savior, you are mine. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may there be in us no divided heart, no limping between two opinions. May in your great love and calling to us and giving us the Lord Jesus as our Savior and Lord, may we so treasure him that we will always follow him. With the words of Martin Luther that we would let goods and kindred go this mortal life also, the body they may kill, your truth triumphs still, your kingdom is forever, and that we would always confess Jesus the one who is on our side. Lord Sabaoth, 
his name from age to age the same. And that because of the Lord Jesus and his kingdom that is forever, we will live for you. May it be so, Father. In these tumultuous and difficult days, hold us tightly to the mission that you've called us to, to be the church that truly is the pillar and foundation of the truth. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.